Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. All right. Uh, so welcome everyone to another episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. My name is Danielle and I'm joined by Travis, another Solidarity Winnipeg member, uh, and Tara. And today we're going to be talking about climate justice. Uh, so Tara, would you mind just giving us a brief introduction to yourself to start? Yeah, um, so my name is uh, Tara and uh, I, uh, have, I'm a teacher and I've been a trade union activist and a socialist and a um, I guess, a social justice activist for most of my adult life. So the last 25 years, I guess, and uh, actually was more interested in really other issues um, prior to 2018 when the IPCC report came out and was quite taken aback by that and sort of refocused my own energies, um, thinking about just the urgency that we were facing. And so have spent the last three years really focused on that and thinking a lot about how trade unions in particular can play a role in uh, really um, changing the dynamic and exercising power. Um, and so spent a lot of time really working within my own union and other unions to see how we could um, kind of forward some of those ideas. And um, for your own union, is that a, a teacher's union? Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a teacher in British Columbia, so I'm a member of the uh, BC Teachers Federation. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I do serve in a couple kind of official capacities. Um, so uh, we have a provincial committee called the Committee for Action on Social Justice, which has a, a subcommittee for environmental justice. So I'm a member of that committee. And I have also been the climate justice chairperson for my local. So that's Greater Victoria Teachers Association. And I also am a member of the BC Federation of Labor Climate Working Group. So I kind of sit on those bodies and that gives me a bit of an avenue to connect with other folks within the trade union movement. So you mentioned climate justice um, a few times so far in your um, biography. So how would you 
define climate justice? Yeah, so it's interesting. I actually came to think of the term through social movements because my initial activity was with a group called Climate Justice Victoria. And um, so I think uh, folks who have been involved in climate justice coming from NGOs or environmental organizations look at that term and think of it in particular in encompassing a set of ideas that's broader than uh, just climate activism or environmentalism might capture. So the idea of justice typically includes looking at wealth inequality and racial inequality and gender inequality. And so climate justice aims to try and address the climate crisis, but from a lens or a perspective that incorporates those other aspects of the issues that we really need to address in the world and uh, has a vision, I think, of being able to harness the climate crisis in order to address a broader set of issues more globally. Um, interestingly, in the trade union movement, I think there's a little bit of a different frame sometimes around the word justice because it brings up associations with just transition. And while I think here, just transition to folks who have connections with the environmental movement does bring up some of those same ideas. It can be much more directly focused on inequality and the notion that um, well-paid unionized workers need to have a transition uh, in the context where there's a switch to a different energy framework. And even, I, I should say, it has occasionally some negative connotations within the trade union movement, just transition, because people feel that it was a solution that was on offer, but never materialized. And so if you think back to some of the previous examples of unjust transitions, so uh, particularly kind of what happened in the initial stages of the neoliberal period, so the transition away from coal, for instance, in the UK and promises of a just transition that were, that you know, that never came to be. Um, and then also kind of, you know, the Rust Belt phenomenon uh, in North America. I think their just transition can have a, a, a bit of a negative meaning as something that was put forward by people who wanted, you know, members of the ruling class essentially who wanted to shut things down and made empty promises. And so interestingly enough, I've even heard uh, some attempts to move towards a different terminology, the use of the word fair, fair transition, um, which I think is a bit of a shame because I actually think that word just and justice coming from the social movement uh, frame is really helpful and useful. So, <laughs> so it depends a little on your context, who you're talking to, um, how you think about it. But uh, I definitely use the term much more in the social justice context where justice encompasses ideas beyond simply, you know, uh, saving the planet and good jobs to also be looking at, you know, uh, oppressions uh, of different varieties, so racial oppression and uh, 
yeah, gender-based oppression and so on. Thanks, Tara. I think that helps frame our discussion really well. And so then in considering, I guess, the context of Canadian politics, um, how has the issue of climate justice been taken up in electoral politics? And maybe why has this been inadequate? Yeah, so I, I think on some levels, it's been really successful. I think that in terms of articulating a set of ideas that a lot of work's been done and a lot of detailed work has been done. I think, um, so you'll see, for example, many platforms that articulate what a, what a just transition or just recovery or a Green New Deal, what those could look like. And you see that both coming from political parties, but also from groups like the Council of Canadians or um, environmental NGOs um, and really have with a lot of thought, even from the labor movement, I'll uh, point folks if they haven't seen or aren't aware that the Canadian Labor Congress in the last annual general meeting in June put out a really good document um, describing the climate emergency and um, really fairly broad, like looking at issues like Indigenous rights, for example, that may not typically come up in the conversation at a labor conference. So, um, you know, expressing the, um, the vision of what is necessary, I think, has been uh, something that's been done really well. And I think that particularly uh, during COVID, that was a way that a lot of groups um, spent some of that downtime, frankly, uh, was um, thinking a lot about what that would mean, different levels of government, you know, you know, how it would actually play out. I think the challenge or the, the next step is thinking about how we actually make that come to be, because I think the the big missing piece in the equation um, was a recognition about sort of how politics works in terms of power relations and that a lot of organizations and folks really ascribe to a view of, well, in a time of crisis, what's important is the ideas. And so if you have the right ideas out there, then those will be the ideas that are taken up. And so that articulation of a set of ideas around what a recovery should look like um, was the focus. But <laughs> the reality is, is that, you know, if those ideas are not in the interests of the ruling class, uh, they're, they're not going to be taken up. They're not going to be implemented. And I think maybe the last you know, the last year in particular, we've seen that both coming out of COVID and how uh, governments have responded to the pandemic, as well as the climate crisis. And people are just starting to really confront that question of, okay, how do we actually make this happen? Um, and there's a, a, I guess, a kind of related uh, question in terms of those power dynamics as well, which is the, the extent to which we assume that pushing politicians is the correct way to address those power issues. And so even those sections of the movement that I think recognize that some power is necessary, like I point to, for example, the student strike movement, 
Um, really their focus has been primarily on make politicians do the right thing. And a question arises about whether that's possible. <laughs> and smaller segments of the movement or more radical segments of the movement, I would say are beginning to question that and think about, do we have to actually just do some of these things ourselves? And so in particular, the um, old growth demonstrations around Ferry Creek, for instance, would be a case where, you know, yes, there's the call for the government to enact legislation to protect old growth forests, but we're going to put our bodies on the line and simply try and not let these trees get cut down. In other words, take that question into our own hands as a mechanism of exerting power. I think the examples from the Indigenous community as well, in particular the uh, Wet'suwet'en and the Tiny House Warriors are also examples where the approach has been, uh, let's simply do what we think is correct, uh, rather than, you know, asking other people to do it for us. Yeah, that really um, seems to sum up uh, the way that mass action is sort of um, interpreted right now. Um, it even the bigger movements like in Canada, um, like 350, that whole movement, and then they're still so focused on the individual politicians thing, like um, they're climate champions, um, mm -hmm. that whole push. But so I'm wondering what you think about like mass collective action and how maybe we could shift away from that um, more electoral approach. And also, I'm wondering if you could talk about the way that people view um, environmentalism as like an individual endeavor, um, like being green and, and making green choices. What do you think? Sure, yeah, no, two, two really important questions. So on the first one, it's really interesting because on the one hand, this idea that the climate crisis opens up uh, a window or an opportunity to more fundamental change is exciting, but also brings a whole host of uh, political questions to the forefront. And so I think folks who come from a more radical or revolutionary orientation look at some of the Green New Deal proposals and articulate these as non-reformist reforms for folks who might be familiar with that term. But the idea is that we can, the working class can exercise power in order to shift governments within you know, the current system uh, that we live in. But some reforms that are demanded are going to be too challenging or they're too fundamentally in opposition with what the ruling class um, ultimately wants to protect. So elements of proposals for the climate crisis really kind of cut into that because, um, and this actually gets a little bit to your other question, because when we, even when we look at, you know, basic stuff like the, you know, what does just the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy look like? So much of the 
quote unquote solutions that are on offer are market-based solutions. And the reality is that those market-based solutions end up not really solving the problem. So you take the example of electric cars, for instance, where you know some segments of the environmental movement see that as uh, a potential solution, you know, not looking beyond the fact that, um, you know, if you have an electric grid that's run on renewables, then the use of your car, you know, is not on fossil fuels. But of course, you have to think uh, a little, a little beyond that question to the production of the car, to the question of whether, even within the carbon budget that we have, could we feasibly replace every car currently in existence and how much of the carbon budget would that use and what do we actually need that carbon budget for and so it like those more individualistic solutions tend to be the market solutions which are the solutions that are kind of proposed by the ruling class when they come up against you know forces from below or even um you know, just the stark reality of the fact that it's going to be tremendously expensive to adapt to the changes that we're already seeing. Yeah, so those are kind of connected. And so it's an interesting question then about where does our politics go once we're pushing these non-reformist reforms? So if you describe it as, well, we need real solutions, you know, you can move along this trajectory of, uh, you know, of understanding where, yeah, you might start as, okay, individual action is, is not sufficient. Um, you know, we need action on a, on a societal scale. Okay, governments should be doing these uh, actions. So the scale at which governments are doing them is not nearly sufficient. We need something, you know, massive. Um, with huge investments and then start thinking about, again, like back to the transportation issue. Well, we actually need to rethink about how people move around (laughs) and and those kind of things. And then you start to get into this state of conflict uh, where those types of solutions, which are real from the point of view of how are we actually going to use the carbon budget in a manner that you know, maintains to the extent possible a standard of living that's going to be decent for most of the people or all the people on the planet to a level of resistance that's really, really quite intense. And so then you have to start really thinking about even beyond that to, well, what does it take? If, If there's a slogan that says, system change, not climate change, then the question gets raised, what is system change? And what are actually the strategies to get there? And that is really interesting, because that opens up questions about reform or revolution, um, the type of change that's necessary, and then thinking back historically about what do we actually know about revolutionary movements and reformist movements. And so And that harkens back to my earlier point, what's exciting about putting these non-reformist reforms on the table is that the progression of thought gets you to that place kind of necessarily. And I guess within the question of moving off of fossil fuels to renewables, it just opens up naturally in a way um, 
to those questions because the answers that the ruling class is, is putting forward are, you know, just actually can't even address the basics of the problem, you know, in terms of just reducing GHG emissions is completely uh, failing on that front. So then you also asked about, you asked a big question. <laughs> so you also asked about, um, yeah, leveraging power. So that kind of can come from two directions as well. I mean, you can get there in the way that I just described by coming to the conclusion that reformist change isn't gonna cut it either through winning elections or through uh, extra parliamentary uh, leverage of power that tries to push politicians. And so thinking about really how do you get more radical transformation? Um, but you can also get there, I think, in a different and maybe more traditional manner, which is um, just thinking about who has power in society and so folks, and this is a place where people from the trade union movement actually, uh, I wouldn't say have an advantage, but I mean, are coming from a place with maybe a bit more lived experience uh, in the sense that there is a long history and tradition of understanding that withdrawal of services is actually an incredibly powerful thing. And, um, you know, the only thing that has won substantive gains in terms of how much of the share of what is produced actually goes to ordinary people and to um, collective interest as opposed to those at the top of society. You know, there's a challenge from the perspective that the working class is not in the greatest of places right now, if we, <laughs> uh, you know, definitely in, in Canada and the United States and, um, uh, you know, most of Europe, I would say, um, when you get outside of that framework, it looks different. And so I don't want to talk globally about that. But um, for our context, you know, the peak of the trade union movement was the period, um, uh, well, I mean, there was the 30s and 40s was one peak, and then we had a, sort of a second in the, the 70s. Um, but the neoliberal period seen just a steady decline, both in the rates of unionization and the methods that um, workers use. And so strike activity has been incredibly low. And so that institutional memory of leveraging our power is maybe not as, <laughs> not as uh, fresh as it would uh, be nice for it to be. Uh, nevertheless, it, it is still there. And you can see remnants of that rediscovery uh, all around us. We're actually, I'd say, entering a pretty exciting period where the, I, I think we've we've reached the nadir of the, um, you know, the, the, the weakness of the trade union movement. And we're actually headed in the other direction, I think, for the last couple of years. Obviously, the pandemic has played into this somewhat, but uh, unionization rates are actually, um, if you look at the United States, they're on the upswing. We've had a number of really significant um, and fairly militant strikes uh, happen, even, even just looking at the last few months, uh, you know, when the when the, uh, the mainstream media starts using phrases like striketober, you know that something is going on. Um, but that's actually played out statistically, too, if you just look at the numbers. Um, you can see the... 
the word re-education has such terrible connotations, but the, <laughs> the, the, the rediscovery of, um, of labor's past in things like the training sessions that Jane McAlevey has been hosting and some of your listeners might be familiar with her work. She's terrific. I'd rec uh, recommend her books and her training to anybody out there. But she's been doing these trainings based on as trade union training based on, you know, the kind of work that trade unions were doing back in the 30s and the 40s that was informed by, you know, frankly, communist organizers within the trade unions that um, she points to coming out of uh, SEIU local 1199, but you can see it in other places as well, but a real organizing uh, focus and self-activity focus and you know, militant action focus. And so she's been doing these trainings in conjunction with the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. And they've been, they've been really, really big. I mean, I was on one in June, there were 4,000 people participating, trade unionists from all around the world. Uh, they're done multilingual. So they do, uh, you know, they do translation. Um, it's a real example, actually, of the kind of work that the labor movement is, is capable of <laughs> when we put our minds to it. Um, and she's given these workshops over and over. There's going to be another session this spring, I believe. So thousands and thousands of people, uh, you know, uh, relearning kind of that history about what militant organizing look like, looks like. And if you think about that happening now, and you think, well, 10 years ago, sure, we had labor notes in the United States rank and file here in Canada. I mean, there were small pockets of people who were focused on rank and filism and, um, you know, this, these kind of organizing methods. But I think what's happening now is along with that new upsurge in activity is uh, a really uh, exciting interest in ideas to actually say, okay, you know, if we look back at, you know, 19, I believe it's 46, right, as the, um, the most militant year in U.S. labor action, what were they doing? Like, <laughs> what made it so successful? You know, what led to that outcome as opposed to these other outcomes? Because, because that's what we need to win against Starbucks, to win against Walmart, to win against, um, you know, these, these incredibly uh, powerful corporations, not to mention the fossil fuel industry, which is the, <laughs> the target in climate organizing. And so those ideas are coming back into the forefront. And so that uh, question, getting back to um, where we started, that question of power and leveraging Power, I think a new generation of trade unionists is starting to think about that. And I, so, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that there will be a confluence of ideas where that trajectory of renewed militant trade union action starts to intersect with what the uh, climate movement is learning about the kind of power that's needed to make Green New Deals happen, not just be a set of ideas written down on paper. That could be really incredibly exciting. And probably that's just around the corner. I mean, probably we're just at the moment where that's where we're gonna see that really happen. Yeah, some of the stuff that you're talking about is making me think about like intergenerational movements. Um, I feel like the climate movement, at least in the last 
handful of years has been so focused on the youth and like the children are going to save us and Greta Thunberg and everything. Um, what do you think about that approach? Um, and like maybe how we could go forward with more of an intergenerational movement? Yeah, intergenerational. And I think um, the question of class is really, really critical. I think that there's a lot of confusion out there around, you know, are we in it all together? Are old people the enemy? Is China the enemy? You know, uh, is Donald Trump the enemy? Like, people don't have a clear theoretical viewpoint uh, in terms of that. And um, that again comes a little bit, I think from not, yeah, we, we, we definitely need more looking back historically, what, you know, what, what movements were successful, what, what won, and in what context, you know, the folks around like 350 and, uh, and the environmental and climate NGOs, um, look a lot to the civil rights movement and to nonviolent direct action. And there are some really helpful things uh, in terms of that, in terms of understanding that we need mass numbers and that direct action is something that's more militant than just uh, you know, protesting, for example. But the question of class is totally missing from that conversation. And and I think that does lead people to, to kind of misunderstand who the problem is. And so I think you're right. I think there is, uh, or there has been a bit of um, an issue around uh, a lack of solidarity in that intergenerational work. And that's something that needs to be corrected. And, and I think the way to correct it um, is not necessarily around you know, generations per se, <laughs> although that's a feature of it. But I think the underlying question is really that one around, around class. And it's interesting because during the Occupy movement, so that's 2011, so it wasn't that long ago that we actually had a big burst of activity that was really class-oriented. But of course, that came out of the crisis of 2008. And so I think when the originator of um, the crisis is um, more focused around inequality, uh, then it's more obvious who, <laughs> who the target needs to be, I think, around uh, climate and even around racial justice as well. I think this is an issue within um, some segments of the racial justice movements too is, is a lack of clarity around, uh, you know, who the enemy is. And uh, that, that's a necessary understanding for us to be able to know, okay, who do we build solidarity with and who, how do we orient our movements and who really is to blame. And so there's all these different strands in there. There's the, you know, the very liberal environmental strand that does have the we're all in it together thing, which is obviously problematic. I mean, we need to point out that no, there are people benefiting um, from the kinds of decisions that are being made and it's not accidental or, you know, a matter of, uh, you know, not knowing or, you know, a few bad apples or something like that, that, 
emissions are just going up and up and up. No, there's actually forces that are about defending certain people's interests that are preventing us from, uh, you know, uh, doing what's necessary to, to save the planet. And then you, you do have this generational uh, blame, I think, coming from some, uh, some places. And definitely, I mean, I've experienced that even just within trying to work with different, um, with different groups. I mean, to be fair, I mean, there's often, there's often a, a, a grain of truth in ideas that need to be contested. And, um, you know, the reality is, is like, it is going to impact the lives of somebody who's 15 differently than me, someone who's 50, right? Um, so that's, that's legitimate and, and true. And, uh, and when you look at, you know, polling, for example, about where people fall politically, there, there is a problem with older folks not taking the climate crisis as seriously as they need to be. Uh, I just looked at when uh, Victoria City Council just put out this polling on what are your budget priorities for the city? And it was stark. I mean, if you were under 30, climate was number one. And if you were over 50, climate was at the bottom. <laughs> and it was, uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, so I, I get that uh, folks for whom the reality is, is like, okay, percentage of my lifetime that's impacted by this is going to be way more significant, um, that they can look at, you know, statistics like that and say, yeah, old people uh, were a bigger part of the problem and, you know, don't care enough. You know, you can also look at, at facts like 75% uh, of emissions have uh, have happened just in the last 30 years. And so then you point to like, oh, well, who was the generation who was quote unquote uh, in charge during that time? Um, of course, that brings the class question back because who made those decisions, right? It wasn't ordinary people. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't workers. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was people who stood to benefit uh, massively from that. It really was the ruling class who made those decisions in their own interests. So if we can kind of, uh, you know, I think come from a place of understanding where those ideas are coming from, because there is some legitimate uh, frustration, but actually looking at, well, what's a, a better analysis in terms of who is, who, who is, who are the architects actually, who are the decision makers um, that will kind of, that will be the thing that gets us through that impasse and allows for some genuine solidarity uh, around that. I, you know, I brought up the racial justice movement, and I think it is important to talk about that because it is one of the biggest movements happening right now. And so in terms of building that solidarity, we need absolutely to be uh, connecting these issues. And of course, we know that, you know, in terms of environmental injustice, absolutely oppression plays into that so much, right? Uh, sex oppression and racial oppression. I think there's been a significant shift on the question of racial justice uh, moving away from two or three years ago when it was primarily focused on privilege theory and really thinking about uh, interpersonal relationships between individuals to today where there's a lot more analysis on systemic questions. But actually, we, we need the next step, which is why is the system like that? I mean, it didn't get that way by accident, you know. Actually, there were 
there were reasons that it became that way. And there, there are people and reasons that, uh, you know, it continues that way. And again, that has to do with class. And so understanding that dynamic between, um, you know, yes, we can say colonialism, white supremacy and capitalism are the problems, and that's absolutely correct. But also we need to have an understanding that white supremacy and colonialism are features that manifest because of the profit drive of capitalist socialist social relations. And so if we really want to get at, you know, what is maintaining this level of oppression in society, ultimately we have to address what those social relations are, that we have a small group of people who benefit fantastically from the divisions that are created uh, through <laughs> racism and sexism and through uh, an economic system that's driven on short-term gain and the extraction of resources uh, to the benefit of a very small number of people while you know, essentially trashing the planet. You know, as I said before, I think we're in a place where it's kind of exciting because it's like, well, those are the logical next, next steps. Those are the logical next questions. You know, we actually, I mean, you, you brought up the question of, in, you know, individual, uh, individual actions. I, I think most people are kind of past that. I mean, not to say it's not there, it is still out there, but in my experience, the majority understand that there's a systemic problem. So both on the environmental front and on the question of racial oppression. And so, so yeah, so we really are at that, at that phase where it's like, okay, we have a systemic problem. Well, how do you, how do you deal with systemic problems? Like that's where the questions are just arising. Yeah, I think that brings us to a really important question, which is how do we build solidarity around climate justice um, and how do we take into consideration uh, racial and gender justice um, and also considering our context in Canada as a settler colonial country? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, there's understanding the problem and then there's like what are the practical implications in terms of what you do about it? So um, yeah, and how do people move uh, or how do movements even develop in terms of shifting the set of ideas that are providing the foundation for what strategies and tactics uh, are adopted. So I think uh, definitely the issue of, you know, intersectional approaches, uh, like, as, as I said, climate justice um, really encompasses, are critical from that perspective, because I think that each each of these movements brings something different to the table and their integration is actually um, going to help develop the movement and the set of ideas in a really necessary way forward. So I think that, um, you know, the racial justice movement and the environmental justice movement have a lot to learn from the trade union movement um, because that's where the question of class is articulated. I mean, I think there's a big overarching, maybe it's, it's, it's a debate in some places around is class just one more oppression or is there something fundamentally different about class relations that, that does get to that more sophisticated question about, you know, what's the relationship between capitalism, white supremacy, colonialism. But 
Yeah, but we're headed there. So, so when people are actually, you know, working with each other side by side, those questions uh, start to come up. And I think, um, you know, just like going on strike and people standing on the picket line is an incredibly educational <laughs> experience for uh, for workers, and uh, all sorts of uh, ideas come to the front and are are put. Uh, you know, they're, they're things that aren't theoretical anymore that they actually ha have to be dealt with. You know, if you have someone making racist remarks in your organizing meeting and, uh, you know, your strike votes weaker because of it, well, that's a pretty real issue that you have to deal with. So I think, you know, key is actually getting these movements to be working meaningfully together. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. I think it's interesting when uh, you brought up uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, she brought out the call uh, with other organizers before that very large September rally saying, you know, it's great that we have millions of students striking, but let's get real. Striking from school doesn't really hurt anybody. Uh, we need workers alongside with us. I think that was taken up more substantively in some places than others. And I'd say that here, it's been a bit of a weakness, to be honest. Um, so, uh, and I think there was a, maybe even a little bit of, of pushback after that organizing where uh, that feeling of, well, your generation, if younger folks didn't like feeling like they were not the primary decision makers and drivers of the movement and the decisions and uh, and so on. So I, I, my experience anyway was that there was there was some friction in uh, organizing circles around that around uh, yeah around questions of decision making that would that would come up. And so you know yes we we obviously have to have um, workers supporting student strikes, but it's got to go further than that. Like that integration has to be beyond just, I support you and you support me. I think we need to think a bit more about how do we create a movement where those, uh, those, those two segments are kind of integrally uh, connected. And so, um, it becomes actually necessary for us to be working together in order to achieve our goals. That said, the trade union movement's kind of behind on questions of environmental justice. I think it took a long time for the trade union movement to kind of get past the, you know, worker versus environmental uh, dichotomy and, you know, jobs versus trees thing. I think we are just about past that. I mean, I think that's still out there in some areas. And obviously, if you're in more resource-based communities, that's still real. But it's, you know, we're now at the stage where a lot of people accept the idea, you know what, a transition's coming. Either it's one that's <laughs> going to work for us or it's one that's not going to work for us. So that changes the dynamic on that. Um, on that question. Nevertheless, we haven't really seen workers take up uh, environmental issues meaningfully yet. What we are seeing though is uh, small groups within the trade union movement starting to talk about that that's what we need to do. <laughs> and uh, 
in particular, I mean, where I am in British Columbia, the, the heat dumps and the, um, the flooding in particular, I think had a really big impact in terms of making the connection that actually, uh, you know, environmental conditions are working conditions and folks coming to the environmental table, so to speak, via that question of health and safety. The pandemic brought that forward as well. People have a whole new appreciation, I think, of health and safety issues. And so now um, folks starting to think about climate as a health and safety issue. And it's placed that uh, level of legitimacy around thinking, well, this is something that's in our purview. That's something that we care about. So I think, I think that's really good. I think the next question then is, yeah, how does, how does that, how does that connect with the student strike movement and how are we gonna make those connections meaningful or the, or, or other uh, areas of the environmental movement like, um, you know, the push for old growth forests and so on. And, but those debates are happening and that organizing is happening. And, you know, there's some pushback, but that's also evidence of, you know, people are bringing the ideas forward. And so they're actually challenging, you know, where labor has typically been. So for example, Ferry Creek's a really good one because a number of unions brought forward just, you know, some statements in support of Fairy Creek, and there was some pushback from members, you know, there was some flack, but it's like, uh, it opened the question about actually, do we have an interest, you know, if you don't want your house flooded, actually saving that tree is important, you know, and uh, let's connect those issues and these people should be our allies. And what does that, what does that mean? Exactly. So, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's just just beginning. I think the question of bargaining for the climate is one that is just, just entering the conversation. But I also think that we have a, a pretty good sizable, sizable minority that are really going to bring these ideas forward in the next little while. And, um, you know, one, it's, I guess, a sad reality of the climate crisis, but uh, current events are actually propel the movement forward because, you know, it seems that the distance between uh, every next uh, severe catastrophic climate event is getting shorter and shorter. So that actually is, is, uh, is pushing um, the speed at which these questions are having to be confronted. And uh, so people are starting to debate them in a way. I mean, just looking in the last year, I'd say it's quite different uh, today than it was a year ago. Um, I will mention one thing that I've sort of been thinking about that um, a question that I think also needs to come to the forefront because, you know, one is about how do we leverage our power and using, uh, using strike action and bargaining as a tactic in terms of doing that. But going back again to this idea, um, sort of learning from the environmental movement around uh, false solutions, uh, I think the question of public ownership and the commons is one that really needs to be addressed. And I think that, uh, again, thinking about the kind of defeats that the labor movement suffered uh, under, you know, or during the neoliberal period, one of those significant defeats was uh, an erosion of the commons, uh, a real attack on uh, what we had won in terms of uh, public services and, uh, 
and, and almost to the point where folks who are in public sector unions feel afraid to put those ideas forward or, or don't feel confident. Uh, I mean, I think that's been pushed back a bit like with the Medicare for all campaign in the United States, for example. Um, but I think it has to go a lot further. I think, and again, this confluence of movements, I think is critical. Like I think about the call to defund the police and really it needs to be defund the police, refund public services. Like we need a direct connection there between actually, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, so many people are in such dire straits because we've had such an erosion of all kinds of services that that were provided, that were the outcome of, you know, that huge level of struggle that we saw mid-century. Um, and those are gone now. And that relates directly to how we address the climate crisis because, you know, uh, how we're gonna actually phase out of fossil fuels and what kinds of solutions we come up with for things like uh, you know, transportation, retrofitting is another one. These need to be done publicly. Like we, we need to, we actually need to be putting on the table nationalizing the energy system. Um, because if we don't, we're gonna get false solutions. Um, that will be, you know, they will be transitions to renewable, but they will be profit-making transitions to renewable. And they're gonna incorporate all the sorts of issues that all the false solutions in the environment, environmental movement have articulated. So, you know, not thinking seriously about the carbon budget and so simply replacing fossil fuel systems with renewable systems without rethinking uh, actually, you know, what does it mean to move around or what does it mean to heat or cool or, or those sorts of questions and potentially introduce massive new environmental crises as well, right? Like we know issues, for instance, with batteries and, and the kind of um, uh, natural resources that are required, which then plays in again to these questions of racial justice because you know, you, you brought up the question that we're a settler colonial state. We are, um, so the, the issues of resource extraction, you know, both here as, as a settler uh, state in Canada, but actually around the world. I mean, Canada's a pariah, right? We are absolutely, you know, a global demon in terms of uh, our resource extraction planet-wide and uh, Canadian companies just absolutely trampling on the rights of Indigenous people all over the globe. And so market-based solutions are not going to pay any attention to those questions, right? And so saying that uh, we need to nationalize the energy industry is actually about Indigenous justice, because if we're not going to have solutions that don't just involve a different kind of resource extraction of, you know, battery minerals on indigenous lands, um, then we actually need to have democratic control over how that transition is taking place. Um, and so the question of putting that into public hands, I think is a really critical one that is not yet being addressed very much, particularly 
in North America. If you look to Europe and to South America and some other places, I'd say they're way ahead on these questions, but the issue of nationalization is um, more, more at the forefront. Uh, transportation, it plays in, in a big way as well, obviously. I mean, and, and that's beginning to come through a little bit that, you know, when the buses got shut down, that was a really interesting little moment because uh, it did bring forward, okay, how about a national bus system? Like, forget about bailing out Greyhound. How about we actually start our own, <laughs> you know, public uh, Canada-wide uh, bus transportation system and and yeah those are the kind of answers we need um, unions can be great places uh, to have these ideas ferment and I think that Canada Post um, the Postal Workers Union uh, delivering community power is a great example of uh, you know articulating some of those ideas um, through worker institutions uh, they're missing the, the the leverage power to <laughs> to win those things but you know that question's alive in that union definitely but that's a you know a, a tremendous resource when workers actually get become part of the conversation about what these solutions can look like you come up with very different answers than when it's members of the ruling class coming up with them again and that ties in again back to can we just push politicians is it okay just to have you know the right political party doing the right thing well no because they that is not they are not representatives of the working class right they they have other interests. The NDP government in British Columbia is just like a classic example. I mean, here we have a party that, you know, frankly, ought to know better. And what are they doing? I mean, <laughs> they're just being, uh, you know, their record is absolutely atrocious. They pass UNDRIP legislation and then they send the RCMP in to attack indigenous land defenders trying to keep coastal gas link and a, a, a natural gas pipeline off their land. Um, so they're just in this, you know, state of complete contradiction. Uh, certainly can't rely on uh, that avenue for coming up with the right ideas about what the transition um, needs to look like. I think those ideas actually have to come from us. Um, I'm wondering, like you've you've mentioned the role of trade unions a lot. I know that's like a lot of your your focus. Um, so it's sort of a two part question. I'm wondering if you were in a trade union, um, what could you, as an individual worker, do within that union that's in pursuit of climate justice? Second, if you're a worker, oh, hey, can we do the two parter one part at a time? I'm really yes. bad at remembering the question. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Let me do that one and then you can come back <laughs> to part two. <laughs> um, I, I want to go back to Jay McAlevey um, uh, to answer that question, because if we look at, uh, you know, what does it mean to actually organize for power within our unions? She makes a really, really good point, which is that we have to think about or if we want to win, we have to think about organizing in terms of organizing within structures, not within affinity groups. She doesn't use that language exactly, but you know, folks who've had an environmental focus who are in trade unions, and they come in kind of two flavors, I would say. There's the ones who don't pay attention to their union at all. So they're in environmental groups and they're off doing 
you know, direct action at forest camps or, or whatever it is. Um, and they don't even see their union as a place to organize around environmental issues. Then there are those who are on an environment committee and find like-minded people and essentially replicate the organizing model of an environmental movement within their union. So um, it's pretty much based on, you know, who are like-minded people already and how can we kind of access some of the resources of the union to do some things. What McLevy points to is that the power of a union is actually that it's not a volunteer-driven organization, that people have to be part of the union. And so therefore, you have an opportunity to talk to and win over and act in concert with a whole stratum of workers who are going to have a big range of ideas. Um, and who you actually have access to talk to and to relate to in a meaningful way um, that's different than, um, you know, just putting up a poster and seeing who shows up um, and much, much more powerful if you can win that. And one of the reasons that I think bargaining is so important is that if you think about, well, what are the areas of work that a union does that truly engage all the members of the union. Well, bargaining's the one, like, when do people mostly come out for meetings to set bargaining objectives? You know, when are you all acting in concert when you go on strike? When are you, <laughs> uh, you know, when do you get 98% participation rate when you take a strike vote? And so, uh, you know, it's not just that bargaining is powerful and therefore we could win environmental demands. It's also actually about using bargaining because it's the area of union activity that uh, truly en engages all the members of the union. And so if you put, um, let's say, free bus passes uh, as a demand on your bargaining table, you're going to be talking to every single member about actually why this is an important demand and how it relates not just to you, but to, you know, the climate and all these other issues and potentially winning them over and having a shift of ideas in a, a lot broader uh, group of people. Um, you can connect with communities in ways that very few structures in our society allow you to do. I mean, I just think about, I mean, my union, right? Teachers are everywhere. They're in every community. It's great. And so if we try and push something through the union as a bargaining demand, you know what? They're going to talk about it in Kitimat where they're building the LNG end terminal, right? So, um, <laughs> Uh, so if you can win some teachers over in that community to some of these ideas, then you have a toehold in a place where that conversation really needs to happen. Um, but those people are connected also to their union and their colleagues there. So they're hearing a set of ideas um, from a group of people that they have some trust in and that they have a relationship with. And so that's incredibly powerful, you know, in a way that volunteer-based organizations they just don't have they don't have that power they don't have a connection to broad layers of society um, whose ideas are quite different from theirs but where there's a common interest already and so there's a motivation to actually listen to each other there are a few other places you can do that besides unions i think um churches, religious organizations are actually another one where, uh, you know, you're 
your basis of connection is around your religious affiliate affiliation, uh, not necessarily what you think about all growth logging. Um, and so if you actually raise some of these questions in those contexts, I think you can have a broader, um, a broader reach as well um, than sort of a traditional uh, NGO uh, type of organization. But unions are definitely, they're, they're just a fantastic resource from that perspective. So think of your union as part of the environmental movement. So if you're one of those people who are just like, oh yeah, I do my climate stuff out here, but not in my union, um, see your union as a tremendous resource. And then B, if you're actually already doing work in your union, but you tend to do it more through, okay, let's find the 10 or 15 people who want to be on the environment committee, uh, really broaden that reach and think about what are the structures uh, within my union that allow me to talk about these questions with more people and how can I use um, the bargaining process in particular to advance uh, the, these ideas and also actually to put demands on the table. Tremendous opportunity. Um, one, one way to think about what kind of demands would you actually put forward uh, is, uh, you know, think about your workplace in terms of what kind of transition your workplace needs to go go through and you can think about how does that transition actually take place you know by mirroring a little bit how do we enforce health and safety uh, within our workplaces I mean where this has happened and there are there are examples of it you know can you set up just transition uh, committees for example can you have your employer develop uh, climate uh, plans you know with worker, worker input or like Cup W, can you just put forward a, you know, a plan that you've developed internally yourself and say, we want to see this happen. Yeah, those are all kind of great ways to bring, um, to bring that into the table. Everybody, every workplace has buildings that probably are heated uh, with fossil fuels. And so, um, you know, just that simple transition is one. Um, but a lot of workplaces are a lot more complex, actually, and uh, a lot of the, um, you know, questions about transitions, we're going to need that worker expertise. I was just recently reading about the, the NHS in the UK. They actually are doing quite a bit in terms of uh, in terms of transitioning. And there's all kinds of questions in terms of medical procedures and, you know, uh, chemicals and that sort of thing that are used and how they're produced. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of issues just uh, around the workplace that can really bring those ideas forward. And I think that's kind of the first step on that, on that uh, using the bargaining leverage. Ideally, I think unions actually work in concert with each other to get to bigger, uh, bigger plans. And there's some great examples of this. So Climate Justice New York is a group that formed um, after Hurricane Sandy and has about a dozen unions, I think. And they got together and they basically went to um, a local university that had some expertise in uh, climate and they got some researchers to work in tandem with uh, members of their union and put together a platform saying like, okay, if we want New York state to be, you know, 50% renewables by 2025, what does that look like? And how does each of our 
member unions contribute to that. And they put together a plan that had, you know, uh, solar on school buildings and, uh, you know, uh, uh, enhanced uh, a uh, speed rail system around the state and wind farms and uh, this whole collection of things. Um, Texas, of all places, is doing the same thing. A group of unions, again, coming out of the, the really terrible flooding that happened in Texas, has um, put together a, you know, a coalition, a grouping of, of unions uh, under the umbrella of their state uh, labor federation and taking a very similar approach where they've uh, contacted a local academic institution uh, to get some of that expertise as well to put together plans to say like what does it mean for you know for the state of Texas to actually meet its its Paris commitments for example obviously we're going to need that on a bigger on bigger and bigger levels right we're going to need that on national levels and then on international levels because a lot of these are are bigger questions and we're going to have to actually confront um, that issue of uh, you know state and national borders and I haven't gotten into that uh, at all I don't know if there's time for that but that question of migration and refugees and nationalism is a whole other piece to think about but um, yeah but a starting point I think for folks who are in a union is yeah what does my workplace look like what could what could climate plans or climate planning look like? How could workers be involved? How could my union develop uh, its own picture of what, you know, what does it mean to be a climate just education system, right? And, you know, decolonized as well as decarbonized, you know, and can we actually put together something that's a vision for how that would look? Can we like engage with, Indigenous communities to talk about that. Like, I think all of that work uh, needs to be done. And so it's actually people, you know, members, grassroots members who need to be um, pushing those ideas and starting to make those things happen. So part two of the question, um, which will be our last question. Um, I, we really appreciate your time. Um, so part two is what about all of the workers that aren't unionized? and don't necessarily have any leverage in their workplace. Yeah, definitely. Uh, start a union. Um, I think that, uh, you know, unions are potentially powerful. Uh, whether they're actually powerful or not depends on, it. do they, you know, do they exist? But also, what do they look like? How democratic are they? How much are they exercising their power? And that's, actually as important a question, I think, as addressing climate issues specifically within the union movement. If we don't have a powerful union movement, it's not going to help us to be dealing with climate issues within the union movement. Get, you know, getting back to that, like, why do we need so much power? Their side is really, really powerful. You know, Starbucks is more powerful than the mom and pop coffee shop that's run down the street. Um, the fossil fuel industry is more powerful than Starbucks, right? Um, like we really have a formidable, uh, a formidable uh, other side to, to be dealing with here. Um, I, I really liked folks might have seen an article by George Monbiot in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago where he just talked about 
wealth inequality and the, and the impact that that has on the climate crisis. And that um, actually, if all you did was uh, increase taxes on the rich, like you'd have a huge impact on climate because, you know, that where, who, who's deciding and using um, the vast majority of, uh, of fossil fuels. If we had a powerful union movement and the only thing that they did was, uh, you know, rest, you know, wealth away from the wealthy, that would actually have a huge impact on climate, right? <laughs> like, um, uh, yeah, so we need that because they are the expenders of, uh, of the vast majority of fossil fuels. Um, and also because actually the amount of power um, that we need is is huge. I mean, think about something like the transportation, you know, like uh, um, airlines, right? And, and business flights and that kind of thing. Like, we need to stop all of that, right? Like we need, and that gets back to that nationalization question too. And, and we're gonna have to address things of like of rationing versus market solutions and so on. How do we change? You know, a lot of environmentalists, they're very frustrated. It's like, oh, people don't wanna give stuff up and switch and whatever. It's like, well, if we actually understand the enemy and who has to give stuff up and how they're gonna give stuff up, that's gonna look totally different. If, if a regular working class person is confronted with, well, flights are going to become, you know, five times as expensive uh, versus like, oh, we're going to ration, we're going to ration air travel and you, you know, everybody gets like, obviously you want the fair one, right? Like who wouldn't? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just so straightforward. And yet the market solutions are going to be the opposite. They're going to say, well, we can limit, uh, we can limit air travel. Um, you know, it's, you know, just like, uh, most people won't be able to fly, but some people are going to be able to send rockets uh, out into space for tours. I mean, that is what's actually happening. You know, it's not even, uh, theoretical, right. Um, is that, uh, yeah, market forces essentially allow the uber wealthy, um, uh, you know, and uh, and corporations to just exploit fossil fuels in their own interest, be it, you know, frivolous in the case of, uh, uh, you know, space travel, you know, or the more typical just, you know, what's our bottom line and what's the profitability and do we not want to have stranded assets, which is, you know, what, uh, you know, Shell or Exxon are going to be thinking about, Um yeah, but either way, I mean, that's the 0.001%, either, either way, right? And the way, and we know, again, historically, how do we confront, um, how do we confront the, the uber wealthy, the ruling class? Uh, we do it with labor power. Um, and that's the only way that we have to do it. And, uh, and so we got to get organized. So if you're not organized, uh, you need to become organized. And by the way, on the way there, there's probably lots of much more immediate <laughs> reasons you might have for doing it, like having a living wage and uh, having a decent schedule and that sort of thing. And again, looking back at, you know, the recent Starbucks victory, for example, I mean, there's lots of uh, really inspiring things going on right now. The attitudes towards unionization are changing. I think it's kind of become like a hip trendy thing to do actually to try and organize your workplace. I, I think the potential is there for a really uh, exciting mass wave of new unionizations. And that was, if we look back at, you know, that period 
um, in the first half of the 20th century. I mean, that was the first thing that happened, right? Actually, things looked very similar to how they did today. They had a long depression in the latter half of the 19th century. They had, you know, craft unions, which were higher paid, more uh, professions that required more education, uh, educational background had these kind of somewhat protectionist, uh, stifling organizations. They had had a period of sort of retreat where they just made sure they could maintain their own benefits for themselves. I mean, doesn't that look like what we have today? But folks who are in big unions, what have we been doing? Oh, hanging onto our pensions as long as we can, you know, um, really like turning inward and just saying, well, if we can keep what we have, that's, that's kind of uh, what has to be done. Well, there was a big break from that, uh, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. And all of a sudden it was, uh, you know, lower skilled, lower waged industries where there was an explosion of trade union uh, organization. And, you know, that's how the car industry uh, became unionized. And really like, why couldn't we see the same thing today in um, Amazon, Walmart, Costco? Like, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> those industries are just, are just waiting um, for the same kind of um, militant action to take place. And it can happen really quickly. You can, the, you know, a few examples inspire people. And uh, if you think you can win, you're motivated to try and make it happen. Uh, so I, I think that possibility is really there and pretty exciting. Thanks, Tara. I think we've covered a lot today in this episode, and we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us um, and, of course, with our listeners. And so uh, unless you have any final thoughts you want to share, I think we can wrap up there. That was terrific. No, thank you for having me on. And uh, yeah, I look uh, I look forward to hearing the episode. And uh, yeah, and thank you for doing this work. It's critical. Perfect. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners, Posey here. If you enjoyed this episode with Tara and want to join us in continuing this conversation about strategies and organizing for climate justice, we are having a public Zoom discussion with Tara on April 21st, 8 p.m. Central Time. If you want to join us, you can email us at info at solidaritywinnipeg.ca for the Zoom link. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity winnipeg.ca.